0: As you take your seats and turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. As I was reading these verses and preparing to preach, I came upon the realization that there are many ways in which when we wake up in the morning, we have a sense that it's going to be a good day or it's going to be a bad day. I don't know if you felt this before. Like this morning, I woke up. And when it looked like it was noon out, because the sun was shining so brightly, but it was actually 4.30 in the morning, I thought, today's going to be a hot day. Whether that's good or bad, it's just going to be a hot day. I came across an article recently online that said, how you can tell it's going to be a bad day. There are many different ways in which you can tell, but four of my favorites were the following. Your birthday cake collapses because of the weight of all of the candles. You can tell it's going to be a bad day when your car horn goes off accidentally and remains stuck as you follow behind a group of hell's angels on the freeway. You can tell it's going to be a bad day when your twin sister forgets your birthday. And you can tell it's going to be a bad day when you wake up to discover that your waterbed broke, and then you realize, I don't have a waterbed. That's when you know it's going to be a bad day. But what about when it's going to be a good day? Have you ever had that feeling when you think this is going to be a great day today, when you wake up with expectant hope? There's a very interesting reality as we come to the end of chapter 2 where Naomi has had some very bad days. And she's waking up on the morning of this day thinking it's going to be a bad day just like every other day has been. And this day is going to change her mindset. We're going to see it unfold before our very eyes that she's going to go from despair and hopelessness to hope. This is really the climax of this book as far as the turning point is concerned. What happens here at the end of chapter 2 changes everything. The course of this book is altered because of what Naomi sees based off of what has happened to Ruth. What about you? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning expectant to see God work in your lives, expectant to understand His grace anew, afresh? Are you watching? Are you waiting? Are you hopeful? Are you expectant to see the new mercies of God on display in your life in these very moments? My prayer for us today is that as we see Naomi and we see what happens to her as there's a shift in her thinking and in her hopelessness to hope, that maybe the Lord would grant hopefulness in some of your hearts this morning. If you're needing hope, there's hope to be found in these verses. And it's not necessarily in your circumstances. It's in the person and work of God, our Redeemer. So let's read these verses together and pray and ask God's blessing upon our time this morning. Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. At mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and don't insult her. Also, you shall purposefully pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it so that she may glean And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up, she went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. And her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today? Where did you work May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth, the Moabite said, furthermore, he said to me, you shall stay close to my servants until they have finished all of my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Father, I pray that you would grant us amazing grace this morning to see what fleshly eyes cannot see, to feel what broken hearts cannot feel on their own. We need a supernatural work, and that's why we are banking on the promises in your word that your spirit will illuminate our understanding as we give careful attention to your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law and that above all, we would see the magnificent splendor and glory of God's amazing grace. Father, I pray that every single person here would walk away from our time in your word freshly aware of your love for them. Yes, your work on their behalf. But the love that motivated that work. Make us aware of that. That we would stand in awe of the one who loves us. And then bend that love out to those around us. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Just two simple points that we will see this morning. We see amazing grace that's given and amazing grace that's received. Grace given by Boaz and grace received by Naomi. So, number one, amazing grace that's generously given by Boaz. This is verses 14 through 18. Verse 14, at mealtime. So there's a break in the time between verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 happened in the afternoon. Verse 14 is going to happen in the evening. At mealtime, Boaz says to her, this is, again, just another testimony to Boaz's character. We saw this last week. Uh, Ruth's character was on display. We saw she's humble, she's hardworking, she's grateful. We saw Boaz's character. He leads in love, he provides, he protects, and he trusts in God to do the same for those that would find their refuge in him. He's tender, he speaks tenderly to Ruth's heart. And here we see, again, provision and protection. He says, come here. So he says to Ruth, come eat with us. So number one, that's incredible that he would say to a woman, come eat at the table here with all of my uh, other servants. Number two, she's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's a Moabite woman. She's a stranger. She's not one of the workers that Boaz has. She's a stranger to Boaz. She doesn't even know who Boaz is. She's gleaning in his fields. She's uh, using that a law that God had given for just kind of the welfare system for uh, Israelite people who were poor. They could go and they could glean in any field. She picked this field and she is working as hard as she can. And so Baal says, come eat with us. Don't be an outsider, eat with us. Uh, Dip your bread into the vinegar. This is uh, a a custom that we still have today. If you go to any nice restaurant and they give you, you know, the oil and the balsamic vinegar and you dip your bread in, that's exactly what's happening here. Enjoy eat, be satisfied. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and she was satisfied so much so that she had some left over. This is the classic doggy bag that you get to take home, right? I need a box to go because I have so much food here. Now, who is Boaz thinking of when he gives her all this food? He's thinking past her to Naomi. Remember, he knows who Ruth Uh, who Ruth's mother-in-law is. He knows how she's related to him and how she's related to Naomi. So he's thinking, I want to provide not just for Ruth, but beyond her to Naomi. So she's satisfied. She has some left over. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. So now it's no longer she just has to stay on the edges of the field here. She can go anywhere she wants to go. She can get any crops that she wants to get. So any sheaves, don't insult her. Don't put her down. Don't call her a Moabite woman. Don't call her a foreigner. Don't call her an outcast. He's protecting her, not only as a woman, but also ethnically different than everybody who is there. He's protecting her. So let her glean, even among the sheaves. Do not insult her. Verse 16, also you shall purposefully pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean. So do the hard work. Put the sickle in, pull the grain out, put it into a bundle, and as you're putting it into the bundle, just whoops, I just so happened to drop the food that I was putting into my bundle. Leave it. Do all the work so that she can just come along and grab it and put it in her bundle. And then don't rebuke her. It would be a very easy thing for these workers to rebuke her after being told all that they've been told. She's a foreigner, she's a Moabite woman, she's an outsider, she's a woman, and yet we are going to give her first-class treatment. How many people would have been going around doing what Boaz commands, saying, we didn't get any of that treatment ourselves? You're You're an outsider. Look at all the hard work we're putting in. Maybe they're starting to grumble. That's why he says, no, nobody do this. Don't insult her. Don't rebuke her. Let her do this. And so she does, verse 17. Again, Ruth, her character's on display. She works hard. Grace is given to her, but she's working hard. She gleans in the field until evening. So that's, uh, if we go all the way back to a couple weeks ago in our sermon scene, when she began gleaning, it was before the sun came up. So 6 a.m. all the way now to probably about 7 p.m. She's been working all day long. She beats out what she has gleaned, and it's about an ephah of barley. Now, an ephah, we don't have that measurement an ephah of barley is between 30 to 50 pounds of barley. It's six dry gallons, if that means anything to you. It's about uh, equivalent to two weeks of wages. So working for two weeks, this is about what you would get. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 17 says that one ephah was enough to feed 50 fighting men. One ephah. So if you have this beautiful bountiful harvest, and you're going to be able to feed you, Ruth, and Naomi, for at least a month. This is going to be a lot of food. An ephah between 30 to 50 pounds. To try and put that into our perspective, again, because we don't really have this ephah idea, and we don't really have a lot of grain being put onto our backs as we walk into a city. Let's just take a banana, okay? Humor me. Three medium-sized bananas, weigh one pound. So this would be equivalent to grabbing a bundleful of 100 to 150 bananas and walking home with that on your back. That's why Naomi's going to say, where did you come from? <laughs> this isn't normal. This is not a normal amount. But she takes it up, verse 18. She goes into the city and her mother-in-law sees what she had gleaned. And she takes not only the Barley and gives it to her, but also that doggy bag, what she had left over after she had eaten and was satisfied. So she's just giving food to Naomi. Amazing, generous grace that's given from Boaz to Ruth and to Naomi. Number two, we're going to see amazing grace gratefully received. So we've got amazing grace generously given from Boaz to Ruth and Naomi, and now amazing grace gratefully received. This is verses 19 through the end of the chapter, her mother-in-law sees Ruth entering the city and into the home and just drops, you know, 150 bananas, right? Just all this food. And Naomi says, where did you come from? This is not normal. And remember, Ruth is an outsider. So I'm wondering if Naomi is wondering, did I not clearly tell you what this practice of gleaning looks like on the outside? Did, did you go somewhere and did you steal something? Did you rob the barley bank? Like, what is happening here that you have all this food? How did you get this? Where did you glean today? Where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. And wherever you work, that guy is amazing. He's kind, he's generous. So, Ruth tells her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, Now, notice the literary masterpiece that Ruth is. There's such beautiful poetic irony here. We know the answer to this question. We know in whose field Ruth was gleaning, and we know why that matters to Naomi. But Ruth doesn't know that, and Naomi doesn't know that, right? Ruth knows the name of the man that she was able to glean in the fields, but she doesn't know how he's related to Naomi and how this can bring hope to the situation. Naomi knows who Boaz is, but doesn't know that that's the guy that she was hanging out with. So there's a lot of beautiful suspense here. And even in the way that it's said, she could have just said Boaz, but look at what she says. In verse 19, the name of the man with whom I worked today is. It's the last word in that sentence beautiful suspense. And I just, I have to wonder what Naomi's facial expression was in this entire episode. First, just overwhelmed. Wow, that's a lot of barley. This is not normal. What in the world happened? And then she says, whose field did you work in? Like, who is this guy with a little a little upturn of her mouth, just a little hope there. This is really cool. Never expecting to hear the name Boaz. She hasn't heard that name in 10 years. Never expecting to hear that name. And Ruth doesn't know why that name even matters. So she just says, hey, the guy that I was hanging out with, that I was working in this field, his name's Boaz. Can you imagine at that moment what must have happened? Naomi thinks, I, I haven't heard that name in over 10 years. I I know who that is. He's related to Elimelech. He's related to us. And everything just starts going a million miles an hour in her mind, right? This could be the hope that we've been looking for. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. May he be blessed. May Boaz be blessed of the Lord And then, this is interesting in grammar, when it says, May he be blessed, Lord. Who has not withdrawn his kindness? Who's the he there? Who's the his there? Some people say that it's Boaz. Boaz has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And though Boaz is going to give his kindness to the living and to the dead, I don't think it's Boaz, because Boaz didn't even know all of the things that he was doing. He just wanted to take care of Naomi, and that's all he knew. He didn't even have a plan for that. He didn't go hunting down Ruth to say, "Hey, I want to take care of you." God did that work. So I don't think that Boaz is the man on display here. He's the first team, "May Boaz be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness. The Lord has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead." Look at the beautiful balance of our dear sister Naomi. Look at the beautiful balance here. She said, That bitter circumstances come from the hand of God. And now she says here, he has not withdrawn his kindness. That word kindness, hesed, his covenant-keeping love, his loyal love. The love, my, my favorite definition for hesed is, when the one from whom I have no right to expect anything gives me everything. That's hesed. And she says, I have no right to expect anything from God, and yet he's lavished grace upon me. He's generously given mercy to us. He's given us kindness. He hasn't withdrawn, that word withdrawn, literally abandoned. He has not abandoned us. It might have felt like he abandoned us, but he did not abandon us. So look at her balance. This is why I want to be very careful to condemn her in chapter 1. When she says, call me Mara because God has dealt bitterly with me. She's not saying I'm bitter. She's despairing. She's depressed. But she's saying these circumstances have come from God. His hand has gone forth against me and their bitter circumstances. But she's not saying that's all God deals out, because here she says God has dealt kindly. God's dealt kindly. He provides both struggles and blessings. And so here, Naomi realizes the implications of what has transpired that day. And I believe she feels a strange sensation arising in her heart, and that sensation is hope. She hasn't felt hope in years. She hasn't felt hope in years and now she feels, wait a second, the implications of what just took place that Ruth hung out with Boaz, that that's the field she just so happened to fall into. This is amazing. And so she says, this man, middle of verse 20, is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. He's one of our closest relatives. He hasn't just taken care of us. He is something special to us. The enormous pile of grain had reassured Naomi that someone was kind to Ruth. But when she finds out that that person who was kind to Ruth was Boaz, now she realizes that somebody is behind that kindness, that God is presenting Boaz to Ruth and Naomi saying, I have something amazing for you. It's not just about the bread. I've got something amazing beyond all your wildest comprehensions. She realizes that now. She says, this is his hessed love towards us. Why? Because he's our relative. He's our closest relative. Some of your translations might say he's our kinsman redeemer. We talked about that this morning in our Sunday school. He is a redeemer. He can redeem us. Now, what is this kinsman redeemer? In the Old Testament, it was a male family member who was expected to fulfill five basic duties. I want to give these to you. I know this is a little bit academic, but you're going to need to know this for what's going to follow. It's a close male relative, family member, who is expected to fulfill five basic duties. Here they are. Number one, the goel, that's the Hebrew word, goel, the kinsman redeemer, their job was to avenge the killing of a relative, track down and murder, execute the murderers, track down and kill the guilty party. That was your job as a kinsman redeemer. If somebody murdered your family member, you were to call them to justice. This is in Numbers 35. Secondly, you were to be the recipient of money being paid out for a wrongdoing done to a family member. So if something wrong happened to a family member, some uh, act of injustice, you could receive the payment to give it to and take care of the family member in case that family member was deceased. This is Numbers chapter 5. Number three, buying somebody out out of slavery. If a family member had sold themselves to indentured servitude because they were poor, You could go in, you had to go in if that was the case. You were called by God, commanded by him according to the law to go in and redeem them out of that situation. This is Leviticus chapter 25. The fourth is you had to repurchase family property that had been sold during hardships. So you were to to buy back land similar to the indentured servitude, right? If you are so poor that you need to sell yourself into slavery to make money and be provided for, this is kind of a step... Uh, beyond that or step away from that. So if you, um, before selling yourself into slavery, if you have land, you can sell land. And the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, if he found out about that, was supposed to go purchase that land and bring it back into the family, right? Land was a huge thing for God to give Israel a land and territories for tribes. Land was not supposed to be given to other people. They get the land. So God wants that land to be kept within the tribe, within the families. So if you sell it to somebody, the kinsman redeemer is supposed to go in and buy it back. That's Leviticus chapter 25. And the last one, it kind of encompasses all of it, was to ensure justice was done in lawsuits with relatives, to ensure that justice is done in lawsuits with relatives. This is all built on the principle that the family was to care for each other, to take care of each other, to provide for each other. So in a very technical sense, the kinsman redeemer, if any one of those five things was happening, they had to, by God's law, step in and care for that family member. Now, the reason why I give you that, and I know it's a little bit academic, but the reason why I give you that is because none of those five things are in view in the book of Ruth. None of those five things are in view. The selling of the property is going to happen in chapter 4, but it hasn't been sold yet. The reason why you need to know that is because Boaz does not have to do anything. He doesn't have to do anything. Those five things, if one of those five things, he is under the law of God to do something, but he doesn't have to do anything. There's a very technical way to understand the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, and that's if they fall under one of those five things. But there's no murder to avenge. There's no restitution to be made. Nobody's in slavery. Land has not been sold yet. So there's a technical way to understand Goel, but there's a non-technical way, which is just a friend, a redeemer, somebody who helps you in moments of helplessness. Just three passages, Genesis 48, Psalm 107, and Lamentations 3. Genesis 48, this word is used to speak of God rescuing his people from harm. He rescues them. He is their Goel. He's their redeemer. He rescues them. Not because any one of those five things have happened to us, but he loves us and he rescues us. Psalm 107, he delivers people from their enemies. He delivers us. He rescues us from our enemies. Lamentations chapter 3, he saves us from death. He delivers us from death. He redeems us from death. This is the way in which Naomi is using this word. He's our relative who is able to come to the aid of a family member, not because he has to, but because he chooses to. Here's the key. If Boaz is going to act on behalf of his relatives it will not be because the law demands it. It can only be understood as an expression of his love and his grace. He will redeem because of love, not law. He will act at great personal expense to himself because of love, not law. So, she says, he's a go-well. He can help us. But she has something else in mind. She has something else in mind. If you remember, go back to chapter 1, verse 8. The first time that Naomi had said God's Hesed love in any context in this book was chapter 1, verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, after Malon and Kilion had died, and she's going to go back to Bethlehem, she says to Ruth and to Orpah, go return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal Hesed with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May he give you hesed. And remember, what did it mean when she says, go back to your mother's house? Remember what that meant? It meant go back home where you can get married again. You have your whole life in front of you, go back home and get married. She's saying, maybe God in his kindness will give you a husband. So the hesed love that Naomi's thinking about here is maybe God will give you a husband. So go over to chapter two, verse 20, when Naomi says he's not withdrawn his hesed love, For sure, that's the provision of bread. That's the protection that Ruth has in Boaz's field. But I think that Naomi is thinking, maybe this is going to be the way in which Ruth can get married. Maybe Boaz is going to be that man. She's just Yenta from Fiddler on the Roof, right? She's the matchmaker. I have an idea now. This will be perfect. Not only can we be cared for, but you can enjoy marriage. You can enjoy a family. And then, this is why she says he has not withdrawn his kindness. He's not abandoned us with his hesed love to the living and to the dead. Because if a, a son is raised up through Ruth and Boaz, the lineage will go on. Elimelech's name will not have died. So she says, maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. Verse 21, Ruth says, and it, again, the author of Ruth wants you to know the obstacles that are in the way. First obstacle, there is not one of those five requirements required by the law for Boaz to act. If he's going to act, this is all going to be love. It's all going to be just the kindness of his heart, not duty at all, just devotion to Ruth. Secondly, verse 21, Ruth the Moabitess. So if Naomi's thinking, maybe Boaz will marry Ruth, the author wants us to remember what an insane idea that would be that a Moabitess would be married to a Hebrew. She's a a former idolater, worshiping the god Chemosh. She's passing the children through the fire. Probably she didn't do that herself because she hasn't given birth to any kids, but she's seen that happen. There's no way in which this can happen, right? But Naomi, no longer despairing, hopeful, believes maybe that can happen. It's okay. It's okay to dream big. Because I've got a big God that can work amazing things. So, she says, please, uh, verse 21, this is what Boaz had said to me. Furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all of my harvest. Now there's something very interesting here. My Bible says servants. I don't know if your Bible has that word furthermore. He said to me, You should not say, you should stay close to my servants. And then Naomi's response is, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids. I don't want to make too much of this, but I do think that there's something to be seen here. Because if you remember, Boaz had specifically said, Stay here closely to my maids, closely to my female servants. But here, Ruth. Misquotes Boaz. Boaz had said, Stay close to my female student, female maids, female servants, stay close. And Ruth says, He told me to stay close to his male servants. That's why the the word servant there is a male servant. Why does she misquote him? Does she remember incorrectly? I think that she's catching what Naomi's saying: of maybe through all of this I can find a husband. I don't think that she's thinking Boaz, but I think that she's thinking maybe one of these servants. They've been very kind to me. They haven't insulted me. They haven't rebuked me. They've cared for me. They've provided for me. They were very nice even with Boaz. When Boaz said, maybe bless me, you understand the Lord's presence is here. And they say, yes, and you too. These are God-fearing men. And maybe I'll find a spouse there. I think that's what she's saying here. Now, I don't know, but it's very interesting that when Boaz says, stay with my female servants, she uses a word, I'll stay with his male servants, and then Naomi says, no, 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 stay with his female servants. I think there's something there, because I think Ruth is going to say, there's a way to do this. I can marry one of these men. And Naomi says, no, let's wait for something even crazier to happen. One of the reasons why I think that's the case is when Boaz, at the end of chapter 3, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, which is very weird, it's a very strange chapter, it's a lot of fun, When we get to the end of that chapter, Boaz is going to find Ruth at his feet, uncovering his feet and doing this really strange proposal thing. And he's going to say, May you be blessed of the Lord who did not go after the younger men. There was a lot to pick from Ruth, and they were all there, and you didn't go after them. You waited for an old man like me. Remember, there's an age difference here. That's why I don't think Boaz is even making a move here. I'll, I'll be your dad, I'll care for you, but there's no romance happening. And so, Ruth says, I'll hang out with his male servants. And Naomi says, no, no, no. Hang out with his female servants because God has something even better. Trust God's plan in this. It's going to take patience. It's going to require a lot of patience. And that's why Boaz is going to say when she uncovers his feet, you didn't go after one of the younger guys. You're blessed in the Lord who waited. You didn't go after one of the younger guys. So, Ruth says he even told me that I get to stay in his fields and stick close to his male servants and Naomi takes your face says look at me look me in the eyes don't go to any other field don't go after any other man stay close to Boaz don't go anywhere got me understand I mean just like please Ruth make sure you don't go anywhere else stick with the women because God has a plan for you maybe with Boaz now it's a beautiful ending, but it doesn't end there. Verse 23, so she stayed close to the maids, close to the female servants. She's not going to hang out with the male servants in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is a chronological statement. Ruth stays close to Boaz and to his maids until the end of the harvest. And she goes back home and she lives with her mother-in-law. The barley and the wheat harvest is about seven to eight weeks. They come and they go. Seven to eight weeks. And in the midst of the seven to eight weeks, there is nothing happening between Ruth and Boaz. There's tension here. After the harvest is over, Ruth just goes home. Boaz doesn't sweep her off her feet, Boaz doesn't marry her right then and there. We end chapter two, and Naomi, who thought, This is it, this is the man, and hope was rising up in her heart, now she's wondering, It's been eight weeks. It's been two months, and I wonder if every day, I wonder if every day when Ruth went home, Naomi said, so did Boaz say anything to you? What did he say to you? <laughs> nothing, nothing. Eight weeks. This requires patience. And it's very interesting because at the end of chapter two, food is once again coming to an end, just like at the end of chapter one, and a regular opportunity for contact with Boaz is going to end now, too, right? The harvest is over. So, if Boaz was going to make a move, he's missed it. This was the chance. Every day working in his field, and now the harvest is over. I'm not going to be working in his field every day. I'm not going to see him every day. He's missed his opportunity. The window is gone, it's over. We're back at the end of chapter one. No food. The family extinction is a very real possibility. But the difference between the end of chapter one and the end of chapter two, even though circumstantially they all look pretty much the same, the difference is now Naomi has hope. At the end of chapter one, no hope. I am just in the midst of bitter circumstances, and because she was in the midst of bitter circumstances, she couldn't see, right? She said, I have I left full and i have come back empty and she says that right with ruth next to her she clearly did not come back empty but she can't see the blessings that god has given to her because of her despair but hope hope when you receive hope when you get just even a, a kernel of hope in your soul just a tiny little seedling of hope everything changes and naomi's thinking of the impossible happening and god's going to care for us so, circumstantially, they look the same. But now Naomi knows we're not empty-handed. We're not empty-handed. God's going to care for us. So, chapter 2 ends with a magnificent picture of grace on display. And I want to just kind of zip up all of chapter 2 with six, six principles of what grace looks like. Okay, just This is in conclusion to all of chapter 2. Six principles. We've done three sermons in chapter two. This is six principles of what grace looks like on display. Number one, grace takes the initiative and makes the first move. Grace always takes the initiative and makes the first move. If you remember back in verse eight and nine, Boaz shows up, says, who is that woman? Uh, one of his servants tells, her, tells him all about what she's done and who she is, and he goes to her and says, I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to protect you. I'm going to care for you. Grace takes the initiative. If you are a Christian, stuff just happens in your life constantly. But if you don't understand the theology of the book of Ruth, you won't trace the stuff that's happening back to the God who is making those things happen. God's taking the initiative. He's making the first move, and stuff's always happening in our lives. But if you don't understand this theology, this is why I want to go slowly through it so we can see the theology. If you don't understand the theology here, you're just going to say, stuff's happening to me instead of God's hands behind every single thing that's happening in my life. My question to our hearts is, are we perceptive as to who is quietly orchestrating each of those just so happen moments in our lives? Are we perceptive? We've said before, God's providential sovereign care of us is mainly subtle, Not spectacular. And therefore, those who are ignorant of the book of Ruth, those who are ignorant of the theology that's here, are ignorant of God's sovereign hand, and they tend to just think, God isn't doing much in my life, when He's taking the initiative every day to give you grace and mercy. Are you a careful student of God's providence in your life? Are you careful? That's why I gave you that assignment a couple of sermons ago. Just think about all that just so happens. They become very clear in your rearview mirror. That's when we know, oh, that's what God was doing. But look for them in the here and now. Look for them. It just so happen that we show up on a Sunday. We've planned this picnic for months. And it just so happened that two things have happened today. Number one, it's blazing hot outside. And number two, where we normally hang out is over on that patio. But we're going to hang out over there. Now, I don't know if that means anything. But it just so happened that God chose to make a difference there. Who knows what that's going to mean? Who knows if that means that instead of sitting at a round table, which comfortably holds like six people, but we try to cram in because we love each other. We're going to sit at these straight tables that you can comfortably hold eight, nine, ten people. Maybe you're going to sit with somebody that you weren't going to sit with over there. Maybe you have a conversation that God's going to use in your life to bring you to a place where you wouldn't have been if we'd been sitting over there. Who knows? I don't know. We'll know it when we get it in our our rearview mirror. But be perceptive to the way that God's working and moving. They're all mundane things. They're all very subtle things. But the foundation of all of them is that God is taking the initiative in His grace and making the first move. Number two, grace surprises us with provision and protection. Grace surprises us, us with provision and protection. Recipients of grace are usually surprised because they know more than anyone that they are undeserving. This is what Ruth said. Why have you taken notice of me? I know I'm undeserving. I'm a nobody. Grace surprises us with more than we could possibly imagine. Number three, grace is willing to play the role of servant to someone less worthy. Grace is willing to play the role of servant to someone less worthy. This is in chapter 2, verse 14. Boaz serves Ruth when Ruth should be serving him. Grace is willing to play servant, the role of servant to somebody who is less worthy. Ruth is an outsider, a foreigner, a former idolater, a destitute widow with absolutely nothing to offer Boaz except for gratitude. It's all I have to offer. And when you perceive the kind hand of God's providence in your life, it will produce gratefulness. When you see the way that God's grace is working in your life, it will produce gratefulness. So let me ask a question. Where has God provided an ephah of barley in your lives? Lately. Where where has God given you a gift that you say, I was undeserving of that. I did nothing to earn that. I have done nothing to merit that whatsoever. Where has God done it? I I can name probably five things right off the top of my head that God's done. in, In my life in the last month where i completely unexpected and God provided for something. God protected me from something. Where has God given you an ephah of barley lately? I've seen so many people in our church do that for one another. That's what I love about our church family. Because again, usually the way that God provides is not miraculous. It's just ordinary obedience. I see somebody in need, I meet the need. I love somebody, I care for them. So is there somebody that you could offer an ephah of barley and be used by God to care for them in their greatest needs? Number four, grace works behind the scenes to provide for the object of its affection. Grace works behind the scenes to provide for the object of its affections. It's not out front saying, look at all the work that I'm doing. It's behind the scenes. It's quiet. It's subtle. But it works because it loves the person that it's working for. Again, just putting yourself in the, in the shoes of Boaz, are you in a place right now where you could be used by God to help somebody else? Is there a way that God has provided for you such that you could redeem, quote unquote, the need of somebody else, provide for them, protect them? Not because of law, but because of love. And are you working in your life to get there as fast as you can, to get to a place where you have enough that you can give to others. It's one of the reasons why we want to work hard, right? Paul says that work as hard as you can so that you have something to give away to others. Work behind the scenes and then care intentionally for the people that you love. Number five, grace motivates diligence and discipline. Grace motivates diligence and discipline. You notice that as Boaz gives Ruth grace, Ruth does not say, great, where's the lazy boy? I can put my feet up and you can do all the work for me. What does she do? She receives grace and it motivates her to work all the more with diligence and discipline in in the fields. Ruth works hard. We should too. If you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, if you claim to love Jesus and know the love that he's given to you, then you should be working as hard as you possibly can, not to earn God's favor, but because God's already lavished his favor upon you. And it, it motivates us. Sixth and finally, grace at work in a person's life spills over into the lives of others. Grace at work in a person's life spills over into the lives of others. Grace given from Boaz to Ruth spills over to Naomi. And grace given from God to us should spill over. Even in fellowship as we hang out today, the grace that God's given to us should motivate us to be gracious and loving to those around us. It's all because of grace. Everything that we have is because of grace. Unmerited favor, being the recipients of something that we do not deserve. And just as Ruth and Naomi needed a redeemer, a rescuer from their physical, temporal needs, we need a redeemer, but not for our physical needs. We need a redeemer for our spiritual needs. Just as our brother Marty was talking about this morning, how, again, it just so happened that last Sunday we were going to go over the two topics that he went over today, judgment and redemption. And last Sunday, we didn't. It just so happened that we decided we're not going to go through Marty's teaching, all prepared, has his notes, has his stuff, has the the little uh, easel thing that he brings. He has everything. He's ready to go, and we didn't do it. It just so happened that we didn't. So that today, he would teach on God as a redeemer and that would line up with what we're talking about this morning, that God is our Redeemer. Just as Boaz redeems physically the needs of Ruth and Naomi, God redeems us spiritually. We are stuck in the slave market of sin, and He pays the ransom to buy us out. Mark chapter 10, verse 44, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. And just like Boaz, God being our kinsman-redeemer, There was nothing in the law that demanded he love us that way. He could have, in his justice, just said, you sinned, my hands are clean, you made your choice, and I'm not coming after you. And he would have been no less good. He would have just been righteous and holy. I I told you what to do, you failed to do it. No. There's nothing in this world that demands that we be saved or that we be redeemed. And just like in the case of Boaz, God in his love, not because of law, but because of love says, oh, I'm going to chase them down. I'm going to hunt them down. It's not because of law, it's because of love. And he acts, just like Boaz will, he acts at great personal expense, the giving of his own son. That's exactly what Jesus does. He is our kinsman redeemer. We're going to see this theme over and over. Just as Marty said this morning, uh, the word redeem just shows up constantly in this book. That's the whole point of this book. God redeems our troubles. God redeems our suffering. God redeems our good moments. God redeems our bad moments. God redeems everything. And it all points to the redeemer that we have in Jesus Christ who redeems us from the the worst possible scenario that we could possibly have in our lives, which is the wrath of God abiding on us. God pays the penalty so that we could be forgiven. And redeemed. So, brothers and sisters, do you know, do you feel the love that God has for you? He acted not out of duty, He acted not because of law. He acted because He loves you. No one forced His hand. He said, I've got a plan to save those who cannot save themselves if you understand your depravity, if you understand your helplessness and hopelessness apart from the Redeemer, then when you see God redeem you, it should cause great rejoicing, gratefulness, and it should cause an overwhelming sense of joy. Because if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you've given to us. That's what we want to sing about. We want to confirm the realities of the grace that you've given to us through song as we end our service. We want to remember our hopeless condition apart from Christ, and we want to remember that it's not because of law that you acted. It's because of love. There was nothing that we had that earned or merited your working on our behalf. If we are to be saved... It can only be because of the work of another. And so we cling to that other person outside of ourselves. We cry out for mercy. We feel afresh the grace and forgiveness we have in Christ, which leads us to the reality of your love. God, may we feel your love today as we cling to you, our Rock of Ages.